Hello, everybody. It is the countdown to spooky week. Are we excited? Yes, we are. It is Woe is Media episode 30. That's right. You got Alyssa and Annabelle here. We are back. Alyssa's got more spooky stories. I got more news that is not introduced myself. I'm just like expecting everybody to be like, y'all already know who I am. Part of the brand, Alyssa. Come on now. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm sorry. All good. All good. Yes. Annabelle, tell us what you have in store for this week. I got two pretty cool stories. So the first is, it's not that long of a piece, but it's kind of a good financial feminist piece about this badass woman in the business world. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and how she's a billionaire again. And then my second, (laughs) again, yes, she was. And then she wasn't. Now she is again. Um, And then my second story is kind of a fun business not fraud, but like it, it's it's a little bit more of like white collar sketchiness going on. Um, and then the new IPO with WeWork. So that's what we're going to talk about. Are you referring to the, the 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 MLM WeWork or is this a different company? That's It Works. Oh, WeWork is a shared office space company, but we'll get into that later. It's not an MLM. I apologize to WeWork. I'm sorry. How dare you compare them to a pyramid scheme? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's very similar titles, to be fair. No, that's true. Um, well, I'm glad Annabelle's bringing the fun stories this week because I've got a Debbie Downer episode. <laughs> so everybody's been, um, well, not everybody, but people in the entertainment industry have been discussing this very, very sad, very tragic incident on Alec Baldwin's newest movie set so I just went back and did some more information coincidentally like not because of me saying I want those stories but all throughout work this week I've been the one writing these stories okay (laughs) they've just kind of been like oh Alyssa you can have this and it's in a way kind of a follow-up to last week's story about the IATSE strike because that plays into it we'll get more into it And for this week's Hollywood tragedy, I didn't do another unsolved murder, but I wanted to do a story very much out of like a Hollywood script, just from like sadness to triumph to more sadness. It's just like the, it, it hurts me so much. And I feel like not enough people know about this person who I'm going to talk about. So I wanted to bring a little more light to him. Okay, nice. All right. (laughs) So I titled this story Dawn to Rust. Okay. Because on October 21st, this past week, on the set of the upcoming Western titled Rust, actor Alec Baldwin unintentionally discharged a prop firearm, killing director of cinematography on set Helena Hutchins and injuring the director Joel Souza. Now, many people have been, you know, asking the question this week and being like, if it's a prop gun, why was it loaded? Did it have real bullets in it? Yeah. Great questions all around. And I don't have the answer to all of the questions, but I've got a little more information so that we can build a better understanding of what's going on. Okay. So prior to October 21st incident, I can't remember what day of the week that was, but 
several crew members from the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, aka the IATSE that we talked about last week, raised concerns about working conditions and safety during filming. So they're out near Santa Fe, New Mexico, like in the middle of the desert for a Western. I believe they're at Bonanza Creek Ranch, Mm -hmm. which is a popular filming location for TV shows, movies. If anyone remembers. I knew this was coming. Do you? I think so. Kid Nation. Kid Nation. Yes! City. <laughs> I was going to ask if there was any relation there because I think that was in New Mexico. They both filmed on Bonanza Creek Ranch. Yes. Nice. So for those of you who may not know, Kid Nation was a failed TV show back in 2007 that had like 50 kids like under the age of 12 out in the middle of nowhere New Mexico, basically forming their own society. And it did not get renewed for another season because a lot of questions about child exploitation were actually brought up in the production of this show. Yeah, there were lawsuits out the wazoo. Like some kid drank bleach because he thought it was lemonade. Yep. This other girl was like frying something on a stove and she had all these like grease burns on her face. Like, I mean, if you put like young kids... I mean, obviously they were being filmed, so they weren't completely unsupervised and I'm sure they had doctors and whatever on staff, but it was, it was an idea that was kind of destined to fail more or less. It really was like, if you go back and like, listen to it and read about it, it's, it's fascinating. Like I myself watched it when it was on air, I was enthralled with the show and I was really upset when it didn't get renewed for a second season. But you know, when you get older and you realize the troubles that were afoot, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, sure. Yes, Bonanza Creek Ranch was the site of the filming of Kid Nation, among other things. I didn't have any um, notable names attached that I could find, but I'm sure, you know, if you Google it, you can find many. So among the issues raised by the the crew members were delays in receiving paychecks, excessive working hours, like we mentioned last week, and long commutes. So the production originally told the workers it would pay for hotel rooms in nearby Santa Fe, New Mexico, but they failed to do so. And they forced the crew to make a very long commute every day from Albuquerque. And I did not do my research to see how far, let's see, Albuquerque from Santa Fe is approximately pause for dramatic effect while Alyssa Googles this. Gotta be far. The Western states are large. Uh, Yes, they are. They are very much so. And New Mexico is a beautiful place, but like, you know, in the middle of nowhere, it can be very dangerous. So it's about Mm. an hour away. That's that's, that's an extra two hours round trip. Out of your, out of every day, like that's, it's, it's intense. So concerns were also raised about safety measures surprise, surprise, including at least one complaint about gun safety after two accidental discharges took place on the weekend of October 16th. They already had problems. Correct. And they didn't, they didn't resolve them. Correct. And then people had to pay for it with their lives. With their lives. So the production did not launch an investigation into the accidental discharges that took place the week of October 16th and later claimed that they were, quote, we're not made aware of any official complaints concerning weapon or prop safety on set. I call bullshit. Yeah, I'm rolling my eyes so hard. <laughs> I know, it's like, Ugh, how dare you? So on October 21st, seven unionized members of the film's camera crew were told to leave the set with a producer threatening to call the police if they did not leave and were replaced by four 
non-union members. Nice. I love that. There was no union prop master present on the set during the incident. And that kind of seems like a trivial job to someone outside of the entertainment industry. Like, why do you need someone to like take care of the props? But in situations like this, where you're filming like gun scenes, yeah, it's very important to know about this kind of stuff. Right. You need and an expert. Helena Hutchins, the lovely woman that sadly lost her life, supported the IATSE and planned to strike over the dangerous work conditions days before her death. She even wrote in an Instagram post, like right before she passed away, that it said, quote, standing in hashtag IA solidarity with our at IATSE crew here in New Mexico on rust. So she was fully like not having it. And I remember when we were talking about this in a work inter- uh, a work call, we were discussing it because the 911 call had just been released when we got on the call. Mm-hmm. And I was the one that like was like, yeah, the union members weren't having it. And they were like, really? How did you know that? And I was like, I'm obsessed with the entertainment industry, fun fact. <laughs> so um, Alec Baldwin has indicated his full cooperation in the ongoing police investigation regarding the incident, which was confirmed by the sheriff's office in Santa Fe. And in a sworn affidavit, a detective stated that Baldwin was handed the prop by assistant director Dave Halls, but apparently neither Halls nor Baldwin knew it was a loaded gun. Should not have been disclosed? Apparently not. It's a very tricky situation. So the day after the shooting, a search warrant was issued by the Santa Fe County Magistrate. And the affidavit for the warrant asks if the incident was caught on camera and states Hall, quote, did not know live rounds were in the prop gun, unquote. And the film's production company, which is Rust Movie Productions, LLC, is conducting an internal review. And the New Mexico Occupational Health and Safety Bureau is also investigating. And that's pretty much all I have on the story so far, because it is a very new and continuously updating case. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to pay a little tribute to Helena Hutchins because she was a really cool woman. So she was originally born in the Ukraine. She studied at the National Agricultural University and then Kiev National University in the Ukraine because she was at first studying economics before changing her studies to journalism. Woo woo. And she graduated there with a degree in international journalism and worked on documentary films as an investigative journalist in Eastern Europe. And she met her husband, Matthew, who was American in Kiev, and they had a son together. Bless this child's heart. She moved to Los Angeles to focus on filmmaking after meeting her husband, and she took roles in production and fashion photography, which is really cool. Um, This is when she met Bob Primes, who was a very uh, well-known cinematographer who encouraged her to apply to the American Film Institute Conservatory, where he was a teacher. And she accepted and began studying there in 2013 for a two-year master's program, and she graduated in 2015. And her thesis project, Hidden, was made with director Ryan Frazad and was screened at the Camerimage International Film Festival, AFI, and the Austin Film Festival. So these are like pretty, pretty well-known names like for a yeah. thesis, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 2018, she was one of the first eight female cinematographers participating in the Fox DP Lab program, which was established to provide greater opportunities for women cinematographers. And- not to toot my own horn, but my capstone presentation in college 
was based on women in filmmaking, not just obviously as actors, but behind the camera as directors, cinematographers, producers. And so the fact that I didn't know who she was really upsets me because she sounds like she was really laying the groundwork for future female cinematographers and women behind the camera. Absolutely. In 2019, she was named one of the 10 up-and-coming directors of photography who are making their mark by American cinematographer. She was the director of photography on Adam Egypt Mortimer's 2020 film, Arch Enemy. Mm -hmm. She is also credited for her work on the films Darlin, Blind Fire, and The Mad Hatter, which has yet to come out. So sadly, it will be a posthumous release, I believe. Um, Once again, she supported the work of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees And following her death, teachers and friends of hers at the American Film Institute have already established the Helena Hutchins Memorial Scholarship Fund dedicated to supporting the education of female cinematographers. And her widower, Matt, endorsed the project and asked for anyone wishing to honor her memory to donate to the fund. So if you are interested, I will find a link and I will post it in our show notes. So very nice. Yes. And the very last thing I want to say is obviously with this very tragic accident of a prop gun being misfired, many people are going back to the tragic accident that took Brandon Lee's life. Don't know if anyone's familiar with Brandon Lee, but he was the son of martial artist Bruce Lee. Yeah. And he was an actor himself and he died on the set of a film because of a prop gun misfire as well. And once again, the Lee family is just struck with tragedy, but it just the the parallels it just makes no sense as to why these things can still be happening because yeah. Brandon Brandon Lee I believe died yeah he died in 93 and like we haven't learned anything clearly if this stuff keeps happening yes so i just once again if you're interested i will leave a link to the Helena Hutchins Memorial Scholarship Fund or just you know if you want to learn more about her she was a really cool woman and yeah, that's, that's my first story. Sorry. It's so sad. I have to imagine that production company is going to get sued, right? If it doesn't, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, like, I don't know if Alec Baldwin is necessarily the person to blame, but if there were like complaints days ahead of time prior to this incident where there were worries about gun safety, man, I don't, I don't understand why they need to be loaded. Like there have been enough gun movies where there's plenty of like gun sound effects that can happen correct you know and the sound editing yeah these people know what they're doing in the editing booth like I just don't understand why it has to be that authentic at the (laughs) risk of somebody's life exactly like just you know if you if you're if you're so worried about a noob in your audience being like that doesn't look like a real gun just like remember this moment also I am not a fan of Alec Baldwin in the slightest, but I do feel for him in this instance, if he surely was not aware that that gun was loaded because I mean, when it comes down to it, he did take that woman's life, whether he wanted to or not. And yes, it may not have been his fault, but that is something that's going to stick with him and his, you know, legacy as an actor for the rest of his life. Yeah. He'll have to carry that burden forever. And yes, and that sucks. So it does. It truly does. So on more of a positive note, we'll get into my first story here. So my story is called Billionaire Blakely Blackstone. <gasps> That's oh an office reference for anybody. I, I tend to do alliteration a lot in my story titles, but 
but this one being all bees that was sort of a beats bears battlestar galactica i always get it confused because once again Alyssa doesn't watch the office but i always think it's bears beats battlestar galactica you might be right i don't really remember the order of the first two Uh, yeah i i honestly couldn't tell you but um whatever (laughs) it doesn't really matter matter. (laughs) we got the Um, right words Alyssa, do you own anything from the brand Spanx? I believe I do. <laughs> I, I don't I wear them the often, but I think I have a pair, you know, tucked away in my drawers. From recruitment when we were forced to wear them? You know, you know, the, trauma, trauma got me bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, um, Spanx founder, her name is Sarah Blakely. So that's where I got the the Blakely from the story title from. Um, She is a former billionaire, but now she has regained her status as a billionaire because she has sold the majority of her clothing company Spanx to Blackstone, which is a private equity giant. They have a lot of companies under their umbrella. Uh, Spanx was a private company beforehand. So you were never able to like buy shares of stock exchange and it was kind of closely held like Sarah Blakely had a lot of control of it but she finally decided to sell it to Blackstone the deal values Spanx at about 1.2 billion which is pretty cool so that's why she's regaining her status as a billionaire because she sold her company for 1.2 billion dollars panties (laughs) yeah um with this deal she is going to maintain a significant equity stake um because She's no longer the majority shareholder. The mm-hmm. most she can own is 49%, obviously, because 51% would have to be the majority. Um, but she's still going to have a very significant role in the company. She will be the chairwoman on the board. Um, so that was exciting. So we're going to get into a little bit of like her backstory because there's not a lot of details on the sale. And honestly, there's not a ton to discuss there anyway. That's okay. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about Blakely because she's kind of a cool feminist entrepreneur and it's good to kind of shed light on women in business especially ones with multi-billion dollar companies correct um so sarah blakely or excuse me spanx i guess i should say if you're not familiar with the brand it's an intimate apparel company and they panties yeah they make panties they make bras they make shapewear so things that look like nike pro spandex that you wear under your clothes to make you look thinner (laughs) I don't, I can't think of a better way to put that, honestly. As as the recruitment chairs would tell us, it smooths everything out. Yes, it's for modesty. Yeah. But but they also make things like, you know, tights and pantyhose and stuff like that. Like, don't they make bras too? They do. They make bras. They've gotten into leggings as athleisure has become more and more popular. Like, they're not just shapewear anymore. That was the original product of Spanx. And that's kind of like their cornerstone that most people know. Um, so it was founded in Atlanta, which is pretty cool because it's a hometown favorite for myself. Hey, it was founded in 2000. So it's about 21 years old right now. And it has remained a private company since its founding. As I said, Sarah Blakely's had control over it. So kind of the origins of it. She started this at 27 and she spent $5,000 of her savings kind of researching and developing this idea she had. And this whole idea came from the fact that, so she used to be, a door-to-door saleswoman selling fax machines. I can't think of a worse job than that, but that was, that was her job. And she had to wear her, her company's policy. She had to wear pantyhose all the time, which is unfortunate because she was working in Florida having her pantyhose. So it was really hot. And, you know, she would be wearing like open-toed shoes and wearing 
pantyhose with open-toed shoes just like looks kind of funky is a no-no yeah you, it's you just, cut it's the toes off yeah and she didn't care for the look of that either but she kind of liked how the control top pantyhose made everything smooth down as Alyssa said nicely <laughs> for us so she went to a party one day and she was like hmm, I like the effect of the pantyhose but I don't want the feet on them so she cut the feet of them off and kind of just wore them under her pants to sort of eliminate panty lines as well uh, sorry for any guys who are listening. This is not the most you can get over it relatable story, but yeah, this is we so hear cool. about your things all the time. Yeah, and this is our podcast, so exactly. <laughs> um, so she cut the legs off of her pantyhose and kind of wore them under her pants to make herself look firmer. Um, and that was sort of how the idea was born. She didn't like how the pantyhose would kind of like roll up her legs during the party, but she Fair. liked the top part. And she said, I just needed an undergarment that didn't exist. So that was kind of how the idea came to be. So completely original. No one had done this before. So after founding the company in 2000, by the time it reached 2012, the company was netting 20% profit margins on $250 million in sales. So it got big pretty quickly within a little over a decade. Um, And it had a valuation of a billion dollars. This isn't really related, but like, did your mom make you wear pantyhose as a child? I wore tights all the time, which I don't, I guess tights tend to be thicker than pantyhose. Is that the primary difference? Yeah. Cause same product, essentially. Pantyhose tear easily. I remember having to go to like church as a 10 year old and wearing pantyhose. I felt like. I felt like I was dressing like my grandmother, but I was still in middle school. Like I couldn't drive, but I'm out here wearing pantyhose. Yeah, no, I had to wear tights and stuff. I am, especially in the winter time, my parents would like shake me into them. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I feel your pain. Um, But yeah, so at 41, Blakely became the youngest self-made woman billionaire on Forbes's world billionaire list in 2012. And she was on the cover So if you want to go look that up, we'll include that in this week's Instagram post on the episode. Um, But yeah, she was kicking ass and taking names, which is pretty cool. However, um, something came around in March 2020 that negatively affected shapewear. Um, Wait, wait. Oh, it's the panda. I'm so stupid. (laughs) No, it's all good. But yeah, it was like, what could have possibly happened? It, yeah, it was, it was the pandemic because most people, obviously, you can technically wear shapewear with whatever you want. You can wear it to bed for all anyone cares. But typically, when people wear shapewear, they wear it under dresses and, you know, nice clothes and things like that. And with the pandemic, people weren't wearing nice clothes anymore. It just wasn't necessary. And as we said, you know, Spanx has other uh, products, but, you know, Spanx, the, the shapewear is kind of their bread and butter. So, their sales dropped a lot. And that's why Sarah Blakely wasn't a billionaire for a little while because her fortune obviously declined as the valuation of the business declined just because they weren't able to make the same sales with the pandemic. So that was kind of unfortunate. Um, In addition to that, apart from the pandemic, there's also just a lot more competitors in the shapewear market now than there used to be. Um, Other popular brands besides Spanx include Skims, which is Kim Kardashian West's company, uh, Honey Love, which is pretty popular, especially in like the influencer community. I feel like they sell that a lot. Uh, and Shaper Mint is another brand. So that's kind of another reason sales went down 24% for Spanx, which is obviously unfortunate. So 
finally, Blakely kind of decided that she wanted to sell the business. She had been asked on and off, when are you going to sell? When are you going to sell? And she said, you know, I'll know when it's time to sell. And she did. This opportunity came around with Blackstone and they decided, all right, we want Spanx. They're really betting on a big rebound in shapewear and Spanx's other products as the economy continues to reopen. And as people are more comfortable going out and dressing up again, obviously there's a lot of, at least in the South where I am, I feel like there's weddings out the wazoo right now. So people are probably going to wear Spanx to that. I wouldn't know. I mean, yeah, I've only been to one wedding this season, but you know, things like that. I don't think I've been to a wedding in like three years. Really? I don't think so. Wow. Well, nobody wants me to like tear up the dance floor anymore. Well, they're just intimidated by you. Don't take it personally. (laughs) (laughs) Alyssa's got boobs, by the way. (laughs) I burn when I dance. So Blakely finally decided to sell and she will actually serve, as I said earlier, as the executive chairwoman when the transaction closes. So she'll still be heavily involved with the company. What's also cool is the board of directors will be all women. Yes. So everyone who votes and makes major decisions at the company is not going to be a man, which is great because this is a company made by a woman for women. For women. So that's pretty cool. The Blackstone deal team who worked on this transaction as well, they're all women. So there's like pretty much no men involved in any part of this, which is pretty cool. And that's kind of, you know, unprecedented because Blackstone being a private equity firm, heavily male. So it's it's cool that they didn't just send a bunch of men to go talk to Sarah Blakely and be like, okay, thanks, Sarah. We'll take it from here. So little little feminist piece here, which I really liked. Um, Blakely is also a really cool person. She's a minority owner of the Atlanta Hawks, which I did not know, but I thought that Ooh. was really cool. Yeah, women in sports too. Um, and this year she gave $5 million in grants to female small business owners. So yeah, she has pledged to give a large part of her fortune to charity over the course of her life, which is pretty cool. So she's an awesome person. It's good. She's still going to be involved with Spanx and she's not just going to, you know, let her baby go that easily. She's going to have a great female team behind her and yeah, she got to make a good chunk of change in the process. So that is my Spanx Sarah Blakely story. Killing it. Killing it. I love it. I swear the music outside is getting louder and I don't recognize any of it. These people have terrible taste. How dare they? (laughs) All right. So we started low. We went a little high again. Now we're going back low. (laughs) I'm sorry. I next week. I have a fun little thing for Halloween planned. We may or may not record before Halloween, but it's, it's still going to be spooky season in our hearts. So This story is entitled History and Fiction, The Tragedy of Hang S. Noor. So are you familiar, Annabelle? Not at all. Okay. So a few few months ago during Pride Month, I gave you guys a very, very condensed version of the history of the Marcos regime from the Philippines. Today, I am going to be giving you a very, very condensed version of the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia. Oh, okay, cool. So I'm going to start and it all, it all centers around this one man, 
Hang Somnang Noor was born on March 22nd, 1940 in Samrongyong, Indochina, which is now located in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Not much is known about his childhood, but Noor trained as a surgeon and gynecologist before beginning practice in the capital of Phnom Penh in 1975. That same year, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge seized control of the country and proclaimed it democratic kombucha. It looks like kombucha. Kombucha. I'm so sorry if I'm butchering these words. I tried my best. I looked up pronunciations. Um, So Noor was compelled to hide his education skills and even the fact that he wore glasses to avoid the regime's hostility towards intellectuals. Oh, that's awful. So literally, like, you could be the dumbest person in the world, but if you wear glasses, they would treat you differently because, you know, glasses automatically means you're smart. Mm-hmm. That's how that works. Uh, yeah. He was expelled from the capital as part of the Khmer Rouge's Year Zero social experiment and imprisoned in a concentration camp along with his wife, who was pregnant at the time of imprisonment. Trigger warning. Although trained as a gynecologist, Noor was unable to treat his wife when she went into labor as she required a C-section and he would be exposed and the entire family would be killed. So if he was like, let me help you, dear, like they'd be like, he's a doctor. And then everybody would have died. Sadly, she did pass away in childbirth and the child did not survive. Oh, that's terrible. Yes. And nor never remarried like he was devoted to this woman for the rest of his life and we'll get into it a little bit later after the fall of the Khmer Rouge in 1979 nor worked as a doctor in a refugee camp in Thailand and departed for the United States with his niece on October 30th 1980 however in America nor was unable to resume his medical practice which also goes back to my episode about the Marcos regime just because I feel like I mentioned this before, but I have a friend, I'm not going to name names, but I have a friend who is from the Philippines and her father was a trained doctor. I don't know what his uh, specialty was, his practice, but he had to, when he immigrated to the United States, he went to medical school all over again. Just oh, so really? He, yeah. Ugh. Just so he could practice in the United States. Or at least that's what she's told me before. And I'm just like, it makes me so angry the lengths that these poor immigrants have to go through to go to this freaking country that we call home anyways. So despite having no previous acting experience, Nor was cast as Deeth Pran in 1984's The Killing Fields, which was a biographical drama about the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia. Oh, that's cool. Right? Like... And, you know, I find this so interesting because, you know, to anyone, including Noor himself, this could have been a very big trigger because he lived this world. Yeah. You know, and yet he was like, no, I want to be able to tell my story. And like I said, he was initially interested in the role, but interviews with the filmmakers changed his mind. He recalled that he promised his late wife that he would tell Cambodia's story to the world. And in a People magazine interview, he said, quote, I wanted to show the world how deep starvation is in Cambodia, how many people die under the communist regime. My heart is satisfied. I have done something perfect. Wow. I know. Wholesome. Sorry, I didn't yell. (laughs) 
I love this man. So credited as Dr. Hang S. Noor, despite not being able to practice medicine in the United States, his role as Deeth Prawn garnered widespread acclaim and won him the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture, the BAFTA Awards for Best Actor in a Leading Role and Best Newcomer, the Boston Society of Film Critics Award for Best Actor, and the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Wow, he swept. He it, he was the first and only person of Asian descent to win in a debut performance thus far. I believe I think to this day that record still stands. He is the second Asian actor ever to win an Oscar, and he is one of two amateur actors to win an Oscar following Harold Russell for 1946's The Best Years of Our Lives. But I believe the gentleman from Captain Phillips, um, I believe he was an amateur actor before coming out and sweeping that category did you ever see captain phillips is it the movie about the oil no you're thinking of deep water horizon (laughs) that is what i'm thinking of no No, i'm uh, not familiar then captain phillips was that movie that came out i believe about 10 years ago uh it was tom hanks and he's this guy that owns this big old ship and somali pirates like take over the ship it's the guy that says i'm the captain now yeah, that guy. Okay. He, I can't remember his name right now, but I'm pretty sure that he won the Supporting Actor Award. I'll go back and find out later. But very big deal that this man who had never had any acting experience swept so big. Yeah, definitely. So, Nor went on to appear in various other on-screen projects, including Oliver Stone's Heaven and Earth, the Vanishing Sun miniseries, a Hong Kong film entitled Eastern Condors, The Iron Triangle, an episode of Miami Vice, (laughs) and a, I believe it was a show called My Life. In 1988, he wrote a memoir entitled Hang Noor, a Cambodian Odyssey, describing his life under the Khmer Rouge. In 1990, he organized the Dr. Hang S. Noor Foundation with Jack Ong, who he met, I believe, through the production of The Iron Triangle. And it was founded to provide aid to Cambodia. And it was later combined with Project Cambodia um, in 1997, like, Project Cambodia was incorporated into the Hang S. Noor Foundation. So really cool. Nice. Now we get to the sad part. I got you real high. and I'm going to take you real low again. That's what she does best. This is what I do. I'm a storyteller. On February 25th, 1996, Nor was shot dead outside of his home in Chinatown in downtown Los Angeles. Noor's Cambodian assets went to his younger brother while his American assets were used up in legal fees, staving off claims to his estate. So a lot of people came out of the woodwork in America and were like, I have claim on this. I have claim on this, all that stuff. So it was basically all of his American assets were used up to keep those people away. That's terrible. Was three reputed members of the, this is the name of the group. I am not using this word to describe anybody but the quote oriental lazy boys unquote street gang good lord Um, yes three three reputed members of that group were charged with the murder they were tried together in the superior court of los angeles though their cases were heard by three separate juries Prosecutors argue Nor was killed because after handing over his gold Rolex watch willingly, he refused to give the you ready? 
because I'm about to kill you un- unintentionally. He refused to give them a locket which contained a photo of his deceased wife. I knew that was, oh my gosh. So reportedly, Ugh. we don't know that for certain, but that is what has been reported. Defense attorneys suggested the murder was a politically motivated killing carried out by sympathizers of the Khmer Rouge, mm-hmm. but offered no evidence to support this theory. So just kind of sucks. Yeah. All three defendants were found guilty on April 16th, 1998. Coincidentally, the same day that Pol Pot's death was confirmed in Cambodia. And once again, Pol Pot was the guy that was like pretty much the head of the Khmer Rouge. Right. He's the bad guy. Tak Sutan sent, was sentenced to 56 years to life. Indra Lim to 26 years to life. And Jason Chan to life without parole. Well. Wow. In 2004, the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California granted Taksus Tan habeas corpus petition, finding that prosecutors had manipulated the jury's sympathy by presenting false evidence. And this decision was later reversed, and the conviction was ultimately upheld by the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in July 2005. Ken Ku Lu, a former Khmer Rouge official on trial in Cambodia, claimed in November 2009 that Noor was murdered on Pol Pot's orders, but U.S. investigators did not find that credible. And Ken Ku Lu actually died about a year ago, because I remember seeing his name in the papers, and that's where I learned about mm-hmm. the Khmer Rouge. Um, he was kind of like, he, he was one of the guys that was in charge of like the concentration camps. Yeah. Like that was his big deal in the Khmer Rouge. Um, there is a theory that Nora was killed in a bungled robbery pointing to $2,900 in cash, which had been left behind and that the thieves had not rifled his pockets. Why the thieves would have demanded his locket has never been answered, nor typically wore the locket next to his skin under his clothing, so it would not have been easily visible to right. anybody. And as of 2003, the locket has not been recovered. Oh, that's awful. And ever, obviously, after his death, the Hang S. Nor Foundation is still around. His friend Jack Ong has actually made it his mission to have the foundation preserve Noor's legacy through his human rights campaign and they're very much still a part of um I believe they're obviously active everywhere but mostly in California where he was living at the time of his death so I just wanted to share this story because once again you know like I feel that obviously anyone who's not white has a very hard time making it in show business Mm -hmm. and being able to find this very very wholesome gentleman who lived through hell yeah. and came over to make a better life for himself and was able to tell his story and present the harsh realities that are faced by people that are living outside of the United States. It really just warmed my heart. And yeah. it just, sorry, I'm like getting emotional. Oh. This, he just seemed like the sweetest man in the entire world. And of course, you know, only the good die young. I hate yeah. that saying, but at the same time, it's kind of true. It is kind of true. But yeah, that's the story of Hang S. Noor, guys. Go watch The Killing Fields. It's a fantastic film. It's very sad, but it's very informative. So, yeah. I mean, that's awesome. He came from a very scary time in Cambodia. Couldn't even practice as a doctor like he was supposed to and, you know, became a Hollywood man. And that's really unfortunate. His story ended the way he did, but the legacy lives on. Absolutely. 
And just so you know, I have something very big planned for next week as the last week of Spooky Week. So I'm excited. Is that all you got on Mr. Noor? That is. So my last story, I guess it's a positive story. I have mixed opinions on it and I'll let people know what I think at the end of this. I don't want to influence anybody before I talk about the facts here. But this, <laughs> this story is called We Shall Rise Again. Yes, we will. So we work, as we talked about earlier, it is not a multi-level marketing company. It is a shared office leasing company. So they basically have a bunch of office real estate and they lease it out to either other companies or like individual people who like want to run their businesses or, you know, just have like flex office space. That's, that. that's basically what they do. You've probably seen buildings around in major cities that say we work or they have some floors within a larger building that are dedicated to WeWork, but that's what they do. It's like corporate office space, essentially. Cool. So they went public through a SPAC this past week. They had their SPAC merger with a company called BoX Acquisition Corp. And this happened two years after WeWork failed to do its IPO on its own. So two years ago, the company tried to go public by itself, not through a SPAC as we know. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, SPACs are a good way for uh, questionable companies to put themselves on the market because there's far less A, regulation and B, due diligence that people are doing because it's there's no investment banks involved. So that kind of takes a lot of that out of it. And it, it means the quality is, it tends to be a little bit lower for companies going public a SPAC versus a traditional IPO. Now that's not always the case, but in some cases it is. And it, it's kind of the case here. So we will get into it. Um, so we work, if you're not familiar kind of with its rise and fall, it's had quite a journey. It's been a lot of drama and this is sort of like a Phoenix from the ashes story. We love it. WeWork, it had a sky high valuation in 2019, $47 billion. I mean, it was tremendous. Wow. It was a unicorn 47 times over. It was just ridiculous. Wow. And it was planning to go public, obviously, at the peak of its valuation, because that's when demand would be highest for its stock. But it came under a lot of scrutiny from investors and from the media and, you know, people doing due diligence on the company for the IPO. It came under a lot of scrutiny for its business model, its corporate governance, and its founder, whose name is Adam Newman. Have you heard of him? The name sounds familiar. So he's from Israel. He's an Israeli businessman. He's moved over here. And he founded WeWork because he felt like the West has issues with community, which I honestly would agree with. I feel like in a lot of, especially Eastern countries, they value community a lot more over the individual, which obviously has its pros and cons. Yes. But sometimes, especially in corporate culture, people can be a little bit focused on themselves as opposed to like a greater team or the community as a whole. So he developed WeWork so people could have like collaborative areas to kind of create a community at work and like build ideas and stuff like that. So they had this sky high valuation and it came under a lot of scrutiny and what happened. So when it filed its IPO paperwork in 2019, it showed that WeWork had actually lost $1.9 billion in 2018 and was just burning up through all of its cash on its balance sheet. So bleeding money out the wazoo. It was not profitable at all, but it, it still had this ridiculous valuation. So everyone was like, wait a minute, why is it worth this much money if it's not a making any money and b like not managing its money that it does have responsibly? Because 
as we've talked about, startups are not usually profitable, at least at the beginning, but you should be at least effectively managing your money and every dollar you spend should be to the bigger goal of making your company grow. And this didn't really seem to be the case here. So the Wall Street Journal, if this sounds familiar, they released a report about Adam Newman's mismanagement of the company and included all of the possible illegal activities that he was involved with. So once again, the media policing companies who were engaged in sketchy behavior. The Wall Street Journal is literally out here just calling out every single person. Yeah, they're ball busting, honestly. I love it. Yeah, I'm here for it. It's a great publication for its investigative journalism. I mean, they don't they don't let people get away with much once they find out about it. They busted Theranos. They're busted Facebook. They busted WeWork. Like, they're taking big names. They said, who's next? Who's next? We got a hit list. Um, so anyway, some of the illegal activities Adam Newman was involved in while he was CEO of WeWork. Um, he chartered a plane from the U.S. to Israel, and he and the people on board they were smoking weed on the airplane. Oh, doobies. Yeah, and that's no bueno. That's not, I honestly don't know what marijuana laws are in Israel, but you can't do I'll that. Find out. <laughs> you can't smoke weed on an American chartered aircraft like that. It's not legal federally in the States, and it was against airline policy, so that was obviously bad and an issue. Um, there were a lot of issues in WeWork's like corporate environment of sexual harassment and other inappropriate play- behaviors in the workplace, such as excessive drinking. So oh, this no. was a very like, I hate to call it a frat boy culture, but it kind of was. going like, to say that. <laughs> it was very much like a party culture. Like they would have beer on tap and it used to be an unlimited beer policy for employees. But because of all this excessive drinking, people were like actually drinking all this beer at work. So they had to limit it to four beers a day. I'm sure they suffered. Oh, poor babies. And they drink this on the job? Yeah. Oh what? my God. I can. Wow. Also, I looked it up. And as of April 1st, 2019, Israel decriminalized the use of cannabis for citizens over the age of 18 when used in private. Okay. Well, that's good. I guess it was in international airs. So yes, I don't know so. what happens there, but there you go. It was bad regardless. That's not a good look if you're smoking weed on a plane that you chartered. Like this is is. Take that somewhere else. Um, but yeah, so sexual harassment, that was bad. Office drunkenness, that was also bad. They had just a lot of issues with the company spending cash out the wazoo. And Adam Newman, if you're not familiar, there's a very good, um, it's a TV show, but they have an episode on Adam Newman. It's called Generation Hustle. It's on HBO Max, and the episode is about Adam Newman and how he kind of created this cult-like environment within WeWork, and he really did. If you watch it, it explains it a lot better, but Adam Newman is, like, incredibly charismatic, and he's a great public speaker, and he's kind of like Elizabeth Holmes, where he really knows how to make a sales pitch and get people on his side. Elizabeth Holmes, again, is the Theranos founder. If you forgot, she kind of had the same thing, but he created this, like, cult-like environment where they had so much corporate, like... I don't know. They were all about like loyalty and they really wanted to be like that cool place to work. Mm -hmm. But people were like working around the clock and stuff just for the benefit of the brand and weren't getting much in return. And all of these employees had like stock options and stuff like that, that did not end up panning out at all because their valuation went to almost zero as we're about to get into here. Oh, those poor employees who gave so much to the company got nothing in return. 
which is pretty terrible. Um, other issues at the company, like we talked about, they were just spending so much money, like completely bleeding cash, creating the cult-like environment, as I just said. Um, and they had a very strange corporate structure where Adam Newman almost had like like control of the whole board. So his shares that he owned as the founder, he had like basically super shares where he had 10 times the voting power per share as anyone else did. Mm. So you'd have to have 10 shares of WeWork to have the same amount of power as one of Adam Newman's shares. I don't like that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a red flag for sure. That's not common. That is not how most businesses work, even as a private company. Like, obviously the founder and the CEO is entitled to a lot of control because it was their idea and it's their company and they brought it to life. But yeah, that's excessive. Like you have to be open to other members on the board. Mm -hmm. So he had kind of that super majority. And then lastly, so as I said, they own a lot of real estate and then they just lease it out to other businesses. And that's not really that, innovative business model if you think about it like that happens that's basically what all real estate companies do if they're not you know just selling their real estate but what was sketchy about this is there was no separation of adam newman and the day-to-day activities so he would go buy this office space and he would lease it to the company like from his personal balance sheet he would lease it to WeWork, and then WeWork would be paying him rent I eight people. It's just beyond sketchy. I mean, and obviously, you know, he probably wouldn't charge fair market values because he's trying to personally profit from it. Like, it's just a huge conflict of interest. It's really bad business practices. And on top of that, we work lent him money for things at like no interest. So he was getting rent from the company and borrowing money from the company at the same time. It was just absurd how here. like sketchy it was. So the fun, or excuse me, WeWork was eventually taken over by a company called SoftBank. No, SoftBank didn't acquire them, but they took a very large stake in the company. SoftBank is a Japanese telecom giant, and it has an arm called a vision fund, which invests in a lot of like up and coming tech companies. They're a big investor in Uber, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So they're big in the Silicon Valley space. They put a lot of money into big tech companies that they think are going to potentially be very big. And CEO of SoftBank said that he was foolish for investing in WeWork Hmm. because of all these issues that were going on. So that was bad. Um, Adam Newman was called on to resign from the board of WeWork and he was paid $1.7 billion to walk away. Oh, poor thing. He's probably suffering right now. Yeah. So very big payday just to walk away which is, you know, unfortunate, but obviously he took it because he'd be kind of stupid not to. So he resigned, um, but with, obviously WeWork still existed after he walked away and this was in 2019. Um, So he still owns about 11% of the shares right now. So he's still got a big tie to WeWork, even if he's not involved on the board or anything like that, he still has a pretty significant ownership. So the company, obviously, because it is an office space company, it really struggled with the pandemic. Its valuation plummeted from $47 billion to $2.9 billion in very early 2020, even before the pandemic hit, just because of all these issues with Adam Newman. And then it essentially went to like practically zero. The private stock dropped 90%. 
um, because nobody was going into shared office spaces with COVID. That was kind of one of the first major changes is people mm-hmm. weren't going into the workplace for, in, unless obviously you were an essential worker, then that was different. But we're talking about standard like corporate desk jobs. They're not like hospitals or anything like that. That's not involved in WeWork. But yeah, um, that they've tried to recover a little bit as the pandemic has waned a little bit and as the economy is reopening, it kind of has boosted demand for flex workspace because a lot of people have quit, as we've talked about in previous episodes, the great resignation, they've quit their jobs or they've taken something more flexible or, you know, flex workspace is kind of the new normal. So WeWork is doing a lot better because there's a higher demand for a flexible workspace. So yeah, it's, it's been able to kind of rise up a little bit out of the ashes. And as of March, 2021, WeWork agreed to a $9 billion SPAC merger with Boex acquisition. As I said, it is trading as we, that's the ticker on the New York Stock Exchange. SoftBank has retained its majority stake, but it's agreed not to share any of its share, excuse me. It's agreed not to sell any of its shares for one year. So now that it's public, they're not allowed to dump them, you know, and just take the profit and walk away. SoftBank is tied up for a little while. Um, and as I said, Adam Newman still owns 11% of the company. So it's a pretty big chunk for him. So with a SPAC merger of 10 billion, guess who's back on the billionaire list with 10% of the shares, Adam Newman. So, excuse me, 11%. So shares went public last week. They are up 13% after going public. So a lot of the market clearly is pretty bullish on this new reborn we work so what is different you know like apart from adam newman obviously being gone it's still really the same business model so what's Mm -hmm. different so what's different is america's workplace has totally changed as i said like a lot of people want office space but they don't necessarily want to go into a cold office environment that's owned by their company so you can work from home, but oh, like I just want like a desk. And the WeWork spaces, what they are known for is like really nice office space. Like they would have cold brew and kombucha on tap. Like it's comfortable furniture. It doesn't look like cold and stuffy. There aren't cubicles. It's a lot more collaborative looking like plants, nice views. It's just a better, it's just a better vibe. You know, like the whole thing was to create an environment where people feel comfortable in, which is a good thing but you know, you're still working. (laughs) Like that's why you don't need beer on tap because you're still working at the end of the day. And maybe you can work and drink beer at the same time. Uh, I, as a lightweight cannot, but that's neither here nor there. In addition to that, WeWork has renegotiated a lot of its leases because it was paying just like ridiculous prices for all this real estate that it had. And now they have their occupancy of the desks and all of their buildings. It's up to 60%, which is pretty good. So a lot of it is being used. And WeWork is really coming back stronger because it was to that near collapse with the pandemic and with all those issues of Adam Newman. And imagine when companies are pushed to the brink like that, they are either, you know, going to roll over and die or they're going to come back stronger than ever. And this seems to be kind of the case for WeWork. It's that phoenix from the ashes. Their new CEO, obviously, now that Adam Newman is not involved, his name is Sandeep Mathrani. He is a real estate veteran. So he knows what he's doing, hopefully. Um, so if you're interested in investing in WeWork, you can buy shares of We on NYSE. Remember, it's a SPAC. So beware. Yeah. Beware. Yeah, because I am not, not the biggest SPAC fan, as we've talked about. But 
Yeah, I uh, I have mixed feelings on this because it's always cool to kind of hear a corporate triumph story like that. But Adam Newman is not necessarily somebody I want to root for. Um, I really encourage you to watch the We Work episode of Generation Hustle if you're interested. There's also a documentary on Hulu about Adam Newman and We Work. I have not watched that yet, but it's on my list. I've heard good things. He's an interesting character, and it's kind of a cool case study about how valuations and business a lot of them can really be driven by this one just kind of insane person who knows how to talk to people and knows how to make this sales pitch and create this environment. And a lot of it just stems back to the founder. And that's really not common in a lot of businesses. So it's interesting for sure. Um, But yeah, that is what I've got on Adam Newman and WeWork. We rose again. Ooh, (laughs) do you have a smile file? Um... Well, Annabelle knows this, but you guys may not. Uh, The past few weeks have been really rough. And I feel like every time we log on to this call before I press record, I'm just like complaining about my life to her and I feel bad. So Alyssa is finally uh, setting out to find a therapist in Houston. So yes, we are very supportive of Alyssa on her mental health journey as she takes the steps that she needs to feel better about everything because she is a lovely person and deserves love and respect and she wants to feel good thank you about her i also tested negative after being exposed to someone with covid this week so that was uh that was a relief so yes what about you big relief the atlanta braves are going to the world series against the houston astros yes it's my team and well i guess Alyssa likes both teams but it's our team squaring up it's our city squaring up First game, I think, is Tuesday in Houston. I think you're right. So we are excited. The Braves have the worst record of any division winner, but that's okay because <laughs> we're the last team standing in the league. So stuck on that. It's um, But we are also sort of the Phoenix rising from the ashes because our best hitter, Ronald Acuna, tore his ACL back in Baby. July. I know. So we don't have him. Um, one of our outfielders, who is also a really good batter, He's not on the team because of domestic assault allegations. Um, Screw him. We don't need him. Yeah, he does not need to be on the team. And then our leadoff batter had COVID for a while. And then there's there's been a lot of like injuries and movement. But you know, despite all that, the Braves are trying to hold you back. Can't hold me down because you know I'm a fighter. That's right. Yes, reference. (laughs) Go Braves. The Braves have not made it to the World Series since 1999. Listen, I were three years old. It's exciting. We're gonna party like it's 1999. I'm very excited for both teams. Obviously, I'd I'd be happy with anyone winning. So I don't really, you know, I'm not really invested invested, but I'm happy for everyone that is. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 pumped for them. Yes, yes. More sleepless nights for me working late, but you know, <laughs> it'll be over pretty soon. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Braves in four, so it'll be quick. Don't worry. Oh, all right. All right. Thank you guys for joining us this week for another Woe is Media episode. We thoroughly enjoyed it. We will have one more spooky story from Alyssa next week um, and more business. And hopefully we'll have a baseball update as this is sort of becoming a sports podcast. Too. I, kind <laughs> of. Yeah. I don't know what we're going to talk about after the World Series ends. Basketball. Oh, Yeah. I was forgetting yeah. basketball. The NBA is back, but I'll uh, I'll carry the team on that one. Thank you, because <laughs> I I want to know more about basketball. I just never figured out. Figured out. 
figure it out. All right. Thanks, everybody. We will talk to you next week. Bye.